We're turning again this evening to the Acts of the Apostles, where we will pick up in just a few moments at the beginning of chapter 25. So turn with me now to Acts 25. Father, as we come again to your word, we come again to you, the author of it, and ask that you would come to us by your word, by your spirit, opening our minds to your word, and speak to us, encourage us, particularly tonight, move us to be about all the more urgently, all the more boldly, all the more effectively, all the more fully sharing Christ with the world around us, as Paul does in this passage. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may remember that when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, fresh off his third missionary journey, that many of the Jews in that city were none too pleased with what they had been hearing about him. Probably many of them were opposed to the very gospel that he preached, uh, to what he and all the Christians had to say about Jesus, the Messiah. But they especially were stirred up with the Gentile note that was found in Paul's gospel as well. He'd been doing much of his work among the Gentiles, and he seemed to believe that God loved them as much as he loved the Jews, that the Gentiles, too, were included in God's plan, that they, by faith in Jesus, were equal partners in the kingdom of God, and that they didn't need to become culturally or ceremonially Jewish in order to be so. And this rubbed the wrong way against the pride of many a Jew in Jerusalem. And so more than once, we've seen attempts were made on Paul's life, and eventually the high priest and some of the Jewish elders brought formal, though false, charges against him before the local Roman governor. But Felix, the governor, though he seemed to realize that Paul was not guilty, and though he actually seemed a little bit intrigued by Paul and his message, Felix would not acquit Paul or dismiss the charges against him, but rather he left the case in limbo for a period of two years with Paul still in custody all that time awaiting a decision. And at the end of the two years, when Felix was cycling out of office and a man called Festus was coming in to take his place, Felix still deferred making a decision about the missionary in his custody. Wishing to do the Jews a favor, we read in the last verse of chapter 24, Felix left Paul imprisoned. And we will find tonight, as we read on into the next two chapters, that the leading men of the Jews have not forgotten about this prisoner. After two years, they've not let it go. They're still looking for a conviction. Indeed, they're looking for a death sentence. And so almost as soon as the new governor has settled into his new surroundings, these men arrive in his office pressing charges once more against the apostle. And that's where we pick up tonight in chapter 25. And we'll just begin by reading the first dozen verses of this chapter. 
Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore he said, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove, while Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Now, there are just a couple of items I'd like you to notice in these initial verses. The first is that, once again, the charges that are being brought against Paul are unsubstantiated, aren't they? Verse 7, after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. These men still don't have any true charges that they can make against the apostle, even after two years of waiting. But that hasn't stopped them from coming up with a long list of false ones. In fact, the wording of verse 7, that they brought many and serious charges against him, makes me wonder if they hadn't perhaps come up with some new accusations to add to the false claims that they had made two years prior. But whatever the case may be, the charges against Paul are still false. And the second thing I'd have you notice here is that not only is Paul once again falsely accused, but also, once again, the Roman governor doesn't have the backbone to give a fair judgment and simply let Paul go. Just like Felix before him, Festus, verse 9, wishes to do the Jews a favor. Just like Felix before him, Festus allows his politics to get in the way of justice. He finds it politically expedient to try and tease this trial out a little bit, appeasing the Jews who are in his jurisdiction. So Paul is falsely accused, and the governor won't do anything about it. And I want you to mark these things well, because this series of events may not necessarily be unique to the Apostle Paul. As we said a week ago, false accusations may be our lot as well if we speak the gospel of Jesus to the culture around us. For some people, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, 
The message that we bring will be an aroma from life to life. For some people, the gospel will be like the sweet smell of spring, the blooming of new vitality in their souls. But for others, Paul says, if I can paraphrase him, the gospel just stinks. And the people who bring it, bring it in their nostrils with the reek of death. Some people will hate the gospel message, either because it points out their sin or because it calls them to repent of it or because it tells them that Jesus is the exclusive hope of salvation and that they cannot save themselves. And as we said, one of the knee-jerk reactions when people hate a certain message is to demonize and to attempt to discredit the messengers who bring it. If you hate a message badly enough, you may find all sorts of false and slanderous things to say about those who bring that message. And so if we are going to share the message of Jesus, if we are going to be the fragrance of Christ to a world that needs him so badly, we must be prepared for this. We must expect and accept not only the thanksgiving of those who find the gospel to be a treasure, but we must expect and accept also the venom that sometimes comes from those who find it a stench and even the lies that they tell about us. And we must also be unsurprised if, in the face of such accusations, the powers that be don't always give us a fair shake. Now, in this land, Christians and Christianity have long enjoyed a goodly measure of protection and even favor at many points, but that is by no means guaranteed to continue, is it? certainly not always the case for our brothers and sisters in other lands. And again, we mustn't be surprised by this. We mustn't be surprised if there are Felixes and Festuses in office around us at some point, men who know what's right but don't always have the backbone to do what's right. These things are all a part of preaching the gospel in a fallen world. We don't hope that people will hate the gospel. We, we don't hope that people will find us a stench. But we should be prepared for these things. And let me just say before we leave this point that we only need concern ourselves with these things if we actually share Christ with the people around us. We only need to be concerned that some people will consider our message an aroma from death to death if we're actually sharing the message. Are you doing that? Are you telling others that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord? If so, some people, frankly, will think you stink. But others will find you and your Jesus like the smell of spring, the smell of new life that they've been waiting for all their lives. Well, Paul evidently realizes that he isn't going to get a fair shake before this man Festus, and so he drops this bombshell into the proceedings in verse 11. I appeal to Caesar. In other words, I want to take my case to the highest court in the land. Now, I'm not sure whether Paul does this and says this for legal reasons or for evangelistic reasons. In other words, 
I'm not certain if Paul appeals to Caesar because he thinks that this will be his only chance of receiving a fair trial, or if he appeals to the emperor because he thinks that it might provide an opportunity to make the gospel case in the most important city and before the most powerful man in the world. Maybe a little bit of both. Paul certainly wasn't getting a fair shake at the local judicial level. But as we're about to see, Paul's decision to appeal to Caesar will certainly open up new vistas for gospel proclamation, though we don't know for sure if they opened up an opportunity with Caesar himself. But they do open opportunities, and so let's read on and see what happened next. Start with me in verse 12, and we'll read down now to the end of the chapter. Then when Festus had conferred with his council, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who is left as a prisoner by Felix, And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when, a Paul, when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, And all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Now, whether or not Paul intended for his appeal to the emperor to open up even more opportunities for the gospel, it's clear that that's precisely what now happens. We don't actually know whether Paul ever got to speak to the emperor himself, but it is noticeable here that Paul finds himself now with quite an august audience. Not only Festus, the Roman governor, but also King Agrippa, who was what 
I. Howard Marshall has called a petty king. And if we piece together the rest of what Marshall says about Agrippa in his Tyndale New Testament commentary on Acts with the writings of the ancient historian Josephus, we discover that Agrippa was appointed by the Roman emperor Claudius, who was, of course, the great king. Agrippa was appointed to rule as a kind of lesser king over several areas in northeast Palestine. This Agrippa was also, we learn from Josephus, the son of King Herod, who was eaten by worms back in chapter 12, and the great-grandson of that other King Herod who sought to kill the baby Jesus. And Paul is about to have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to these men before Festus, the governor, and Agrippa, the king, and also, verse 23, before the commanders and the prominent men of the city. Now look at the gathering that is assembled here in Festus's auditorium. And what you will see is that the words of Jesus spoken back in Mark chapter 13 verse 9 are being fulfilled. There, speaking to a, a small handful of his disciples, Jesus had said to them, "They will deliver you over to the courts, And you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And those words are now proving prophetic, not only in the lives of Peter and James and John and Andrew, who first heard Jesus say them, but now to another of Jesus' followers, who would follow those men into this great gospel calling. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And that is exactly the door that is now opening before the apostle, isn't it? A governor and a king and many other dignitaries have gathered to hear this man, Paul. And I want you to see in all this the providence of God. This gathering of ancient bigwigs did not take place at the whim of happenstance. And even though Paul, by appealing to Caesar, may actually have hoped for a further gospel opportunity like this one with men at the top of the food chain to take place, he couldn't by himself have made it happen, could he? God was doing this. God was arranging this. It was always his plan, Mark 13, 9, that some of his messengers would suffer and be opposed so as to have the opportunity to bear the news and the name of Jesus, Jesus before governors and kings. And now God is bringing it to pass, just as Jesus said. And though it may not be your lot or my lot to stand before governors, to stand before kings, to stand before Congress and speak for the Lord Jesus there. I think this passage does remind us that wherever it is our lot to speak for Jesus, the Lord will open the doors, even if those doors, as in Paul's case, involve our own suffering. Whether we like it, or not, the Lord has each of us right where he wants us. He has each of us in the city that he's designed. He has each of us in the workplace and families that he has ordained. He has each of us within the spheres of influence that he himself has carved out for us. And he has us even in the hardships 
which he has predetermined, all so that we will have opportunity to stand before, him, before whoever he has planned for us and speak of Jesus as a testimony to them. Just as God had a plan for Paul and opened the doors accordingly, he has a plan for your life. And he will open gospel doors accordingly. And you and I must walk through them. You and I must walk through them. We must speak the message that God has given us to speak, whether to governors and kings or neighbors and co-workers or siblings and parents or children and grandchildren or friends and strangers or Jews and Greeks or Americans and unreached people groups. We must stand before them all whenever God allows and speak of Jesus and the gospel. We must say to whomever God places before us that there is a God and we must explain to him what he's really like. And we must point out to them the fact of their sin and that it is an offense to God and how he must righteously judge it. And we must tell them, we get to tell them how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to be sin on our behalf, to die the death that we deserve, to stand in our place at the bar of God's judgment and to rise again, offering to all who will come to him a resurrection of their own. And we must tell them that these gifts really are gifts, that they needn't be earned by good works, whether moral or religious, and that God needn't be paid back either, but that if we will simply repent of our sin and believe in the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. That if we will simply reach out the hand of faith and receive God's gift as it is offered by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then we will live forever with God and be in right relationship with him even now. That is the message that God has given to us, isn't it? That's the message that we've believed. And that's the message that we must be prepared to speak when God opens the doors of providence in our own lives. And I want you to hear how Paul now begins to do that with this audience that he has been given before governors and kings. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. Chapter 26, excuse me, verses 1 through 23. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. 
Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles." Paul had made a life out of walking through God's open doors. That's the gist of verses 19 and 20. Wherever God gave him opportunity, Paul preached the gospel. And he does so, again in this instance, before a governor and a king and the entourage around them. Now, I don't know if this is Paul's complete gospel sermon to Agrippa. In other words, I don't know if this is all he said or if this is just Luke's shorthand version of Paul's speech. Nor do I know if Paul had intended to say more before, as we'll see, Festus cut him off in verse 24. I don't know if he had intended to further discuss, for instance, why the Christ was to suffer in verse 23. Or if, because Agrippa Verse 3 was already well-versed in many of these things if Paul knew that the king would be able to fill in the blanks. But what I do want us to notice briefly are the various elements of the gospel that Paul lays on the table here for Agrippa's consideration. Notice how he brings Christ's suffering and resurrection clearly into the discussion in verse 23. Notice how he also speaks of the necessity both of repentance, verse 20, and of faith in verse 18. And that he connects the forgiveness of sins with faith in Jesus there in verse 18. Repentance, faith, 
Christ's suffering, his resurrection, forgiveness of sins, all these things are of the essence of the gospel, aren't they? And though Paul only seems to mention them briefly, again, perhaps because this is just a short summary of his speech, or perhaps because Paul knew that Agrippa already understood these things, even though Paul only mentions these things briefly, he provides a paradigm here for how we must share the gospel. If we are really going to share the gospel, we must speak of Christ's suffering, right? We must speak of his resurrection. We must explain that forgiveness of sins is found only in him. We must call people to repentance and to faith in Jesus. This is the gospel. This is what it means to share the gospel. And we must say these things to people. But then, more than the content of Paul's speech before Agrippa, I just want you to especially notice his strategy. Notice how Paul goes about getting his message across especially to someone like Agrippa, who seems to be Paul's primary target audience with this speech, and who, we'll see in verse 26, appears already to be familiar with the gospel message itself. How does Paul try to get inside Agrippa's mind and heart? Notice a couple of things. First of all, how Paul brings his own testimony to the forefront of this conversation. A good bit of this speech is taken up, isn't it, with Paul's own story of his former life in Judaism and the ultimate bankruptcy of it, of his encounter with Jesus, and then of the change that Jesus brought about in his life. His former life, his encounter with Jesus, and the change that Jesus made. That's what makes up a testimony, isn't it? And that's what Paul explains at some length here to King Agrippa. He's using the facts of his own life to persuade the king to come to the same Jesus who met him on the road and turned him around to the glory of God. And this is the second time Paul has done this. He shared his testimony also with that angry mob of Jews who were trying to kill him back in chapter 21. You remember? The Roman commander rescued him, and when the crowd piped down, Paul asked if he could speak to them. And what did he do in chapter 22? He shared his testimony. He told them about his former life and his encounter with Jesus and the change that Jesus had made in him. And so I conclude that the Apostle Paul thought that this was a powerful and effective way of sharing the gospel to rehearse alongside the gospel itself one's own story of meeting Jesus and being changed by him. Now we need to be careful to say that your testimony, my testimony, are not synonymous with the gospel itself. No one will ever be saved just by hearing how you were saved. No, they'll be saved when they hear the gospel itself, the truth about God and mankind and sin and Christ and the cross and the resurrection and repentance and faith. That, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. But the facts of the gospel, once for all handed down to the saints, can be marvelously coupled with our own stories which are handed down differently to each and every saint so that the power of the gospel can be clearly seen by its mighty working in the real time of our own lives and we can tell that story. 
The gospel, Romans 1.16, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But the facts of the gospel produce the fruit of the gospel in our lives, right? Which fruit can become a dynamic and persuasive illustration which we can use as we both live out Christianity, but also as we tell our stories, as Paul does in chapter 22 and again here in chapter 26. Your testimony can be powerfully used of God alongside the gospel to draw someone to Jesus. So think about that. Think about how God saved you and how the story of how God saved you might serve as a helpful illustration when you share the gospel in your own sphere of influence. And as you think about sharing the gospel in your own sphere of influence, notice something else about Paul's strategy here in chapter 26. I want you to notice Paul's urgency, his persuasiveness, his pleading for souls. This is maybe the most striking thing of all about Paul's speech here in Acts 26. Listen to how he concludes his speech after Festus interrupts him in verse 24. 24 to 32, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa... Do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Did you hear Paul's pleading? First of all, with Agrippa, verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. In other words, come on, Agrippa. I know that you can see that what I'm saying to you is from the Bible, and I know that you believe the Bible, so why don't you step all the way over the threshold and believe in the Savior that it's all about? And Agrippa realizes in verse 28 that that's what Paul is doing, that Paul is wooing him, that Paul is persuading him, because he says, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. And then listen again to Paul's impassioned response in verse 29. I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I've shared with you my testimony. I've told you how Jesus met me. And oh, I wish that you, Agrippa, and every one of you in this room would meet him too would be transformed by him too, would be saved by him like I have been. I wish all of you would join me in following Jesus. Paul is not content simply to have laid the facts of the gospel on the table for people to take or leave. He urgently pleads with people 
to step over the line into faith, to nail their colors to the mast, to join him in following Jesus. And he is, I think, a wonderful example to us in this regard. Our own sharing of the gospel, whether at work or with friends or with our children or from a pulpit, should be marked by this Pauline level of urgency, by an earnest desire using appropriate and biblical means to woo people, to persuade people, to plead with people, to come into the kingdom. I was having lunch last week with Justin Harrig, and we were talking about one of his seminary classes in which half the semester was spent studying Charles Spurgeon, that great English evangelist and pastor of the 19th century. And I asked him what about Spurgeon had been the most helpful thing for him to learn. Now, Spurgeon's known for a lot of things. He's known for his exquisite use of the English language, for his mental genius, for his ability to find a way to the cross from any and every text of Scripture, for his great organizational feats among his 19th century evangelical contemporaries. But the thing that Justin said was most helpful was to read Spurgeon's sermons and to see how earnestly he would plead with people to believe in the Lord Jesus, to lay hold of Christ by faith, to be saved today. And then Justin said, I don't hear that kind of preaching very much today. And it was convicting because I realize I'm so often tempted to share the facts of the gospel, to tell people about God and about sin and about Jesus, and even to inform them that salvation can only be laid hold of by faith but then not to go on and earnestly urge them to actually do something about what I've just shared from the Bible. Just today, for example, by means of the food pantry, I had an opportunity to speak briefly to a couple of fellows about Jesus. And I felt good about that. And then I was working on this portion of the sermon, and I realized that while I spoke to them very directly about Jesus... I didn't urge them to do anything about what I had said. I didn't plead with them as Paul does with Agrippa here at the end of Acts 26. I didn't say to these men, does this make sense to you? I know that this has to be good news to your souls. So why don't you believe in the Lord Jesus even now? Why go another day without him? Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. I didn't say anything like that to them. And so often that's the case when I share Christ. I'm not nearly as urgent as Spurgeon or as Paul. And God can and does save people in spite of that, right? Salvation is from the Lord and not from our own presentations of the gospel. But that doesn't mean that we should share the gospel with a laissez-faire kind of mentality, with no urgency, with no wooing and pleading with sinners. Maybe some of you are convicted about this in your own life as I am. And the conviction may be more than anything else simply that our hearts are callous towards immortal souls. But maybe another reason why we fail to plead with sinners is because we've seen the excesses of people who, yes, seem to be urgent to see people saved, but who lamentably water down the gospel by equating repentance and faith with repeating a prayer after me or raising a hand or walking an aisle while every head is bowed and every eye is closed. They're so eager to get people to believe in Jesus that they've radically changed the definition of what it means to believe. 
And because so many people who are urgent to call folks to immediate faith have in the process watered down the meaning of faith and created much confusion and many false converts in the process, some of us may be a little bit leery of gospel persuasion altogether. But we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If we explain the gospel accurately and clearly, if we explain what repentance and faith really are, and if we steer a wide berth around the manipulative methods of getting people to kind of sort of do what we're asking them to do, there's no reason on earth why we can't speak to people of Jesus and the gospel and call on them to believe right now and even urge them and plead with them to do something about what we've said. And again, I think Paul's pleading with Agrippa is a marvelous example of what that looks like. Agrippa knew that Paul wanted him to do something. So let me conclude by putting Paul's example into practice. By saying that some of you, perhaps some of you adults, and especially some of you children, may be like King Agrippa. You know enough to be saved. And yet you're not saved yet and I say to you as Paul said to Agrippa do you believe the prophets children adults do you believe the prophets I know that you do do you believe what the gospels say about Jesus I know that you do do you believe what I've been preaching in this book of Acts these many weeks I know that you do but if you're not yet in the kingdom what's holding you back You know that Jesus is who he says he is. You know that the gospel is true. You know that there's only one way of salvation, but you haven't walked through that door yet. Why not tonight, children? Why not tonight, adults? Why not believe on Jesus today? Why not step over into living faith today? Why not make tonight the night when you take Jesus as your very own? I would wish to God that all who hear me this day would know the Jesus that I know. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but rather believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved.